Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Rupali Mishra about her study of the creation of the East India Company and its relationship with the government of England in the early 17th century, entitled A Business of State. Commerce, Politics, and the Birth of the East India Company. Rupa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. And it's lovely to have you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an associate professor at Auburn University in Alabama, and I did my PhD at Princeton. And I've been working on this topic for uh, a very long time now, so it's good to see the book finally appear. <laughs> it, it was definitely worth the wait, I have to say. Um could you tell us what it was that led you to uh, uh, to write this book in the first place? Uh, well, I I this this is a book that I've been working on since graduate school, and um, this project is actually not what I ever intended to to work on. Um, it was kind of an accidental uh, an accidental end, I guess. Um, I was in once upon a time long ago in graduate school. I was doing a coursework essay that led me to the East Indies archives, the East India Company archives, and I at that point thought I wanted to work on something very different. I was actually going to grad school to work on uh, early modern English Catholicism, and I had this this you know footnote I needed to chase up for a paper, and um, started to delve into the East India Company archives, and I found that they were just so much richer than I could have imagined. And when you're an early modernist, you get very used to how piecemeal uh, the archives can be and how um, sometimes uh, obscure or, or opaque, rather, some of the documents can be. To have a set of archives like the East India Companies is almost unheard of. Um, I ended up so the the, the the richness of the archives actually ended ended up um, leading me to change my topic entirely. And um, not only was it a very rich archive, but more importantly, um, I found that it actually spoke to a number of questions that I was becoming really interested in uh, as I was uh, going through my graduate education. And uh, these questions of power and authority and what the nature of the political state is in the early modern period, um, This it turned out that these questions could actually be answered and and asked really interestingly of the East India Company archives. So that's kind of how I ended up there. Um, it wasn't really an in, in, intended, but then once I was there, it was just too good to leave. It's a really uh, fascinating uh, description of, of how you got to this book, because especially when you consider, as you mentioned in the book, that the East India Company, you know, for all of its, uh, you know, uh, it, the image of it, its it, its its stature in terms of the historical imagination. There's not a whole lot actually being written about it. That you have these great archives, these rich archives as you describe them, and yet so little has been done with them, especially for this period that you focused on in your book. Yeah, it's one of the kind of really um, 
inexplicable uh, facts about about history is that there are particular questions that people get really interested in and stay interested in for you know however long they are. And while those are the interesting questions, other things may not get a lot of attention. So the East India Company had its, uh, in some ways, its moment in the sun. Um, earlier, uh, maybe 50, 60 years ago, there was a, a, a brief period of interest. And before that, in kind of the, the late Victorian and uh, early 20th century, uh, where there were a number of historians, kind of imperial historians who were really interested in the East India Company. Uh, since then, though, that that so for a, a lot of the 20th century, East India Company ended up being, if you weren't interested in the, the empire of the 18th and, and 19th centuries, the East India Company was kind of delegated to this area of, oh, it's just business stuff. It's not that interesting. And um, which, which was a shame because, again, these archives are so rich that they actually have far more to say about all these other questions um, than just uh, the, the kind of sheer economic history of, of, this, of this corporation or this venture. So um, that and, and um, so there isn't a lot of other historiography, or it's not nearly as rich for the early 17th century as, as it is for later periods, um, but that is changing. So I'm, I'm glad that my book has appeared now, and um, it, so it, you know, that, that's part of it. But what I've, what I've discovered over the last few years is that there's an increasing number of people who are also working on this. So I'm not the only one who, who heard the, the, the siren call of this particular archive. So luckily, the, the, it's getting now more the, the attention it's long deserved. I, I can see why it's getting more attention now for another reason, too, which is what you describe is this fascinating intersection of of history and historical disciplines. This is, uh, in one level, it's it's history, it's a business history, it's history of corporations, which is uh, very much uh, in vogue right now. But it's also political history, governmental history, uh, the history of, of business communities. And, and all of it comes together in this uh, very uh, fascinating alchemy, uh, which in which you're seeing how you can't really categorize and, and, and put each discipline in, in a in sort of a, a separate box that they all really blend together when you're telling the story yeah i i was i was really struck by how how easily these archives lent itself to these questions and these are um, as i said these are the questions that really have fascinated me and to not look at them just seemed a real a real pity because this this set of of archives um and the set of questions go together so well. So yeah, I was really interested in like as I as I was reading these, um, you know, years ago to to begin with, just amazed at how much this could tell me about about how people thought about politics, about how people organize themselves, about and and you know these are these are questions of of timeless interest and like this isn't just an early 17th century story in that sense like these are the questions that historians have been grappling with for years is that how do people organize organize themselves how do they understand themselves in relationship to other institutions how do they see themselves as having power what are the limits of that power um those questions i found really were were being teased out and were being um uh, work through in in within the body of the East India Company, and then within the company um, and its relationship to to the to the wider state. What you describe is an environment that is in some ways very different from the world in which we know today in terms of how business operates. I was wondering if you could start us off by taking us back to the late 16th century, early 17th century, and explain how it was that. Uh, the East India Company was formed and, and, and the degree to which it, it 
fit a the type of companies that were being formed back then, and also some of the things that were very specific to the company and, and what, what it was that made it uh, different from some of its counterparts? Uh-huh. Well, so the East India Company is a it's an incorporated body. It's a corporation. And we, we know lots about corporations today, right? We hear about them um, in the news all the time. Now, corporations were were not that unusual in the early 17th century, late 16th and early 17th century. If you lived in London, for example, you would have come into contact with corporations as a regular part of your daily life. Pretty much all of the the, the major kind of categories of jobs were organized in corporations, like guilds. A lot of towns themselves were incorporated. So um, they had, if you were a, a member of the town, if you were free of the town, you might have particular rights for living in Leicester or because you lived in London or something like that. So Corporations themselves were not that uncommon. What was different and what's really interesting about the trading corporations that we know, like the Virginia Company, the Muscovy Company, the East India Company, is that they were corporations that were founded with a few uh, kind of particular um, rights that and, and privileges that they were supposed to make use of to run their trades. So they are these these corporations were um, were granted powers of self government. They were granted some kind of exclusive privileges, and um, they were supposed to. And then they, they got those exclusive privileges. I should mention for a particular, usually for a particular um, uh, set of like span of years, and um, and that those those kind of those those elements were some of what made them really distinctive from other types of, of businesses or shops or things like that. Like they're, they're kind of distinctive institutions. Um, so they're really like a lot of other corporations, uh, but they're also in many ways, unlike a number of other corporations. So you might be familiar with, like I said, the, these guilds and the cities, but what's really unusual about the East India company and makes it different, even from some of the other trading companies is the scale at which it operated. So um, the, the East India Company is was a, a very large company, so um, we don't know exact numbers of how many people were in it, but m- my estimate is that somewhere around 400 people, so it's very large, um, and it's rich. It was really, really rich compared to the other corporations that existed So um, at that time. So the East India Company had... Um, hundreds of thousands of pounds at its disposal. And that is, it's even a lot of money today, but in in the early 17th century, that was ridiculously wealthy. That was uh, money on on the scale of the state rather than of most um, corporations or towns. So it was it was really unlike a lot of companies in that way, um, even as in some ways it was a very recognizable body. Now, the other main thing that really makes the East India Company different, um, again, from a number of other companies, is that joint stock character of it. So the fact that it was really centralized. Um, the East Indies, which in, in the early 17th century, meant everything from the Cape of Good Hope on. So it it doesn't just mean India, it means everything on. Um, The East Indies was really far away from England. And so um, to run that trade, it was very expensive to run ships out there. They were going to be gone for a long time. So to to manage that risk and that expense, they organized the trade into what they called a joint stock well, eventually into a joint stock. It actually wasn't in the first few years, but but by the by the 16 teens, it was a joint stock, which meant that if you were an investor, you paid in your money and you had a 
a stake in the company, but you didn't actually own any part of the ship. There was nothing on it. There wasn't like a chest with your name on it that that stuff was yours. It was just that whatever was bought and sold when, when the profits were realized, you got a proportion of that. So that meant that someone had to make all those decisions for everything. And um, that th- those someones in this case were the government of the East India Company. So every every corporate institution has a government, but the East India Company's government, because of that centralization, because of the scale that they were working on, they they were um, they, they had to manage an, an immense uh, amount of resources. So there was a lot of responsibility and, and kind of wealth ha- uh, in their hands at any given time. You used a word a few minutes ago that I want to return to, which is the idea of the grant. Because we think of corporations nowadays as something you charter, you you file, and you have this existence in the law. And what you describe in the book, and this is very central to so much of what you talk about in it, is the degree to which the grant of the charter for the East India Company is on the sufferance of the monarch. And that, that was something that I thought was very interesting, which was how this was not a, a procedure that was uh, done in Parliament at the time. It was basically the, the choice of the initially uh, Elizabeth uh, I and then um, her successor, James I, to uh, make these decisions about the existence of the company that reflect the degree to which there is this interplay between the company as a, a business and the state as an operation and an enterprise? Yeah, the the so we think of patents and you, like you said, you just kind of file paperwork and you've got it. Um, a patent or a charter, usually they they use the word patent more more commonly later on for whatever. There are a number of reasons, but later on they, they tend to use charter more. Um, but they, they tend to call it the patent mostly. And that patent is actually something that is – it's not so easy to get. It, there's there's a lot of kind of political negotiation and you might say lobbying that goes in to getting a patent in the early modern period. So patents were – um, they're kind of in some ways a new thing on on the economic scene in the late 16th century. So um, up to that point, um, or rather in the in the late 16th century or by the late 16th century, uh, the idea that the monarch would give um, a, an individual or a group of individuals some kind of special exclusive privilege in return for something was was actually it was becoming more and more common, but it was also pretty new and it's still pretty rare. So um, it was the, like the patent as a grant, like this kind of economic grant didn't exist in 1500. If you, if, well, it just, I can't say if you wanted to get one, you couldn't because they just didn't have any way of thinking about that. Um, the first ones were kind of mid century and, but by the, by 1600, they were becoming much more common. And um, that, uh, was actually a problem. It was a political problem, even as it was a an economic and political benefit for some people. Um, some people thought that patents were kind of abuses of power in the same way that, frankly, some people make that criticism now as well, um, that the idea that you would turn over, that anyone, the state would turn over a certain power um, or privilege to a group of people for a set number of years and restrict it from other people for a set amount of time, that was, uh, for some people, it was really problematic. They saw it as an abuse of, of power. On the other hand, um, others' proponents of this said two things. One, that it was the monarch's power to do this, that it wasn't an, an unjust use of, of monarchical power, and also that the Commonwealth really benefited, that the nation benefited from um, from giving people a, an exclusive privilege, um, which is in many ways the same arguments for patents today, that that you, you, you innovate something and therefore you get um, a, a time to make a profit off it before 
and everyone benefits. And then later on, everyone benefits even more because it gets cheaper. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that that kind of logic was still was was there um, was there in the late 17th century as well. So these um, the, the late 17th sorry late 16th century early 17th century saw a flourishing of of um, patent uh, industries. So things like I mean, there are all kinds of patents. They get made fun of in, in 17th century and 16th century texts as well, because some of them are, are essentially just cons. Um, like um, there's there's one in a in a Ben Johnson play, for example, where someone wants a patent to make wine out of raisins, and and that's kind of used as an example, of like something that you really couldn't do. Um, but but soap manufacturer, um, uh, importation of different goods, playing cards. Um, there are there are a lot of different patents, and some of them get a lot of criticism. And there are also these patents for the trading company. And those are, um, if you think about it mentally, um, like they're, they're kind of rather conceptually the same thing, just writ large, where England had no trade to the East Indies and someone needs to develop that trade. But it's going to take a lot of money to, to manage that trade and a lot of risk. And so to kind of entice people into doing that, you give them a patent. They will develop a trade. England benefits and they get profits as well in that because they're assuming also the risk. So um, that that's kind of the logic behind a patent. Now, the patents, though, um, one of the kind of big arguments I, I make about them, though, is that you really have to see them, though, as this ongoing relationship with the crown, because um, it's it is so it's such a personal relationship between whatever body has got that patent and the monarch. The monarch gives the patent, um, but they are they're they're turning over parts of their power for that to work. So the East India Company can do things because the monarch turns over power to the company to actually do those things. So, for example, um, to run the East Indies trade in the early 17th century requires a lot of bullion, silver and gold. Um, ideally, the East India Company what, what people at that time say is ideally the East India Company would have been able to send like English woolen cloths. That's England's biggest export in the early 17th century is wool or woolen cloths, uh, both of them. Uh, and um, what, what they would have liked to do is take woolen cloths, sell those in the East Indies, use the profits from that to fund the trade. And then, and then they'd create a new market for English goods. They bring back East Indies commodities. It'd be great for everyone. Trouble is, you can't sell enough woolen goods in most of the East Indies to make that possible. So the way that they manage the trade is by exporting huge amounts of silver and uh, lesser amounts of gold, primarily silver bullion. Now, that's not it, – it, it's – you have to actually get special permission to do that. So one of the things that one of the patents that the company gets is this provision to export a certain amount of silver each year to run this trade. Now, critics of the company say they're just bleeding England dry of money to get, you know, luxury goods. Um, but their their responses tends to be that, well, yes, but they bring back stuff that makes even more money. So it's a net gain. Um, so it's kind of a developing a, a an we can talk about this more a little bit later, but developing um, new economic arguments for how trade benefits the nation. Mm-hmm. But so the patent is this that that transfer of authority, or also even how do you govern yourselves abroad? Because you can't, if you're an English citizen, you're answerable to the monarch, you're answerable to the laws of England. But if you are in, let's say, Sumatra, how are you going to be governed? There's no, you know, there's no there are no justices of the peace anywhere nearby. How are you going to do it? The answer is that the monarch gives the company the power to use martial law abroad and all of these provisions for how you actually manage the trade. These are 
are powers that have to actually be granted by the monarch. And so the, the patent in that way represents um, this, this wedding together of these interests, of the company's interests, of the interests of these merchants, of the monarch, of the regime together to make something that is supposed to benefit all of the parties involved. It also makes it clear that, you know, for the monarch, this is pretty serious business. They are, in effect, delegating a degree of their sovereignty, and that's not something they're going to do lightly, especially, you know, given political theory at the time, given a lot of the debates that are ongoing, the the the, the, the ever-evolving question of the, the role of the monarch in, in, in England and so forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is, I mean, so this is kind of where where the company also then fits in. If we you know think a little bit about where it fits into the state, this is one of the reasons why the company is so tied to the monarch and the privy council is that all of these powers that the company is relying on are powers that belong to the monarch. Um, they don't belong to parliament. So the monarch in the early 17th century was, um, it, by the late 17th century, this balance of powers changed. But in the early 17th century, the monarch is um, the the repository for for a lot of this kind of power to actually endow and enable people to act in the particular sorts of way that the that the company that the company functions. Um, if you want a patent, you don't go uh, you don't go to Parliament. Parliament doesn't have the power to give you that kind of grant. Uh, that is solely in the the prerogative of the monarch. So the, you have to depend on the monarch. And um, the other element of this is that. The monarch, on a day-to-day basis, governs with the aid of the Privy Council. Um, Parliament is, uh, again, because that balance changes over time, Parliament tends to loom large in people's imaginations for, you know, what's the most important body in in England. Um, But in the early 17th century, Parliament doesn't happen all the time. It only happens occasionally. And um, it isn't necessarily supposed to manage the day-to-day government. In fact, it's, it's not. It's, it's the, the king and council manage the day-to-day government. And so um, the company is reliant and, and really tied to king and council because that's the kind of authority that they rely on. That's the kind of authority that they need. That's the people who are willing to give them the power that they need to, to manage the trade as they envision it. And of course, it's not even that clear cut because we're, you're talking about the king, the privy council, even parliament, as though these are separate from the members of the company. And yet, as you described, there's occasionally overlap. The, the, the king is occasionally an investor. You have uh, members of, of the privy council who are also very prominent in business. And so it, it, there, there's, there's, if you, there's almost like a, a Venn diagram we're seeing here with East India Company squarely between, you know, in the middle between this idea of government and this idea of business. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, the East India Company, uh, so we talk about the company, it makes it seem like it's this kind of entity that belongs in and of itself. Um, but the members in the in the company have their own ties uh, to other institutions. Um, there are people within the company who are incredibly powerful men in, in the regime. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of quotation from uh, a letter from, from a company member in, in the 16-teens where he talks about how Half the Privy Council belongs to is a member of the East India Company. So the East India Company really encompasses um, not just uh, the merchant elite of London, uh, but a number of gentry, a number of aristocrats, a number of some of the major office holders in the kingdom. They are members of the company. And um, so it's and, and, and indeed it goes. So it's not just Privy Council, but also, as, as, as you mentioned, Parliament. 
where um, there are a number of members of parliament who are members of the company. There are a number of merchants who on occasion will serve in parliament. Um, and then, of course, there are also a number of members of parliament who really don't like the company. So you've got the, these kind of interesting and complicated ties between the company, which from company minutes, you'd think, you know, well, Actually, don't think as soon as you read them, but but um, from the way that we talk about the company, kind of in common parlance, makes it seem like the company is a separate thing. But in fact, when you look, the the membership ties um, really, really uh, kind of um, braid the the company's members and and their interests to the regime and um, and to Parliament and to Privy Council um, in all kinds of complicated ways. Where um, and in fact, this was actually one of the 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 topics I, or rather the elements that I actually had to spend a lot of time teasing out is how, how do you, how, how do I as a historian deal with the fact that so many of these people were members of other companies and um, does that, you know, if they're also members of the Muscovy and the Levant company, like what do I, what do I do with that? And kind of interestingly, what I found is that um, to a large extent, like the, the people who govern the companies seem to be really good at kind of, you know, changing hats, I guess you could say, where where when they're acting as East India Company members, um, as governors of the East India Company, they are uh, they were making decisions that were sometimes to the detriment of the other bodies that they were parts of. So there's this kind of interesting um, this Venn diagram that makes it very complicated, and then at the same time, this kind of uh, establishment of of certain priorities at different at different times. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon mm -hmm. the. Uh, the governance of the company itself and some of the issues that they dealt with that you detail in your book. I mean, how, how did the company resolve a lot of these? Uh, what, what mechanisms do they create to resolve a lot of these issues? And, and, and what were those issues uh, that developed over time? Uh-huh. Uh, well, so uh, I mentioned the patent as the thing that creates a company. Well, the other thing that the patent does is that it sets out how the company is supposed to function. So it sets out that the company is this political body that has a yearly election. It has a governor. It has 24 committees. Uh, and it sets out how you you kind of how, how you, power should shift in the middle of a year if the governor dies or something like that. So it sets out some provisions for how the company should govern itself. And then it also gives this, this provision to the, to the company saying that it can govern itself beyond this as long as its rules are not in contravention of the laws of England. So it gives actually a lot of power to the company for self-government, and that's really important. Um, so the company, between the, the, the patent, what's set out in the patent and what develops over time, the company has a governor, it has a deputy governor, it has a treasurer, and those are the three most important elected offices. And then it has 24 committees. And we think of a committee as like a body that already has a whole bunch of people on it. In the early 17th century, Century, what a committee meant was an individual to whom something had been committed, like a responsibility or a trust or something like that. So a committee, so the, the, that body is called the court of committees. Um, and these people, those 24 guys, because uh, they're all men, uh, those 24 men, um, the, the governor, the deputy governor, and the treasurer, those are the elected leaders of the company. Kind of collectively, we can refer to them as the court of committees. 
Now, those people are supposed to be elected every year. In fact, they are elected every year. There's an election in usually the first week of July of every year. And those um, those were the people who, remember I said that they had all this power really reposing in their hands. These are those people. So it's a pretty small group, 24 plus three, um, if you think of potentially four or 500 people um, in the company at large. So there's a lot of people who pay in their money and they pay in a good bit of money. The minimum investment was a hundred pounds, which was a an enormous sum of money for most people. That that you had to be pretty wealthy already to invest in the company, and some some of those members in the company had um, investments of twenty thousand as well. Like it, it's the minimum stakes is is a hundred, and it can go up to very large amounts. So, so those people, those most of the people who are members of the company don't actually get a, a say in the government of the company on a day-to-day basis. They elect people, and those people, those 24-plus governor, deputy, and treasurer are the people who actually make the decisions on a day-to-day basis. Now, they met at least um, every few days, sometimes almost daily, uh, at to, to actually run this trade because it, there, it turns out that there are things you have to do all year round to, to run the East Indies trade. So those, those, um, those people are, are meeting pretty frequently. They're making lots of decisions. And the wider membership, what's known as the generality, they actually only, um, in the beginning, only potentially get updated on, on affairs within the company twice a year. Uh, later on, that's changed to four times a year, but it's it's much more infrequent than the kind of almost daily meetings sometimes of the court of committees. So they're they're picked by election, and those elections could sometimes be really contested uh, because um, while because while the majority of elections ended up reelecting a, a, a large number of people, um, they at one point institute a rule saying that no more than than um, essentially like 75% can be reelected. Uh, but pretty much up to that point, almost everyone would be reelected or very, you know, only a minimal amount would not be reelected. So there sometimes are, are um, challenges to the authority of those, those leaders of the company um, for, for manage, managing the trade, um, doing it in what the, the critics said was a very untransparent way. So remember, if you think if you are a an investor who's you know paid your 100 pounds or your 500 pounds or however much, you've paid in a lot of money and you want to know what's going on, if you are only being informed maybe twice a year or four times a year, for some of those people that really graded, they wanted more insight, they wanted more access. And that that um, those terms of access, transparency, of secrecy, these are ones that turn up a lot in, in the company's minutes because it turns out that there are these um, frequent uh, contests between uh, between the, the leaders of the company, those elected leaders, and the generality over who gets to see what and when. Um, so for the leaders of the company, they argued that secrecy was really important. Um, and that's really normal in the early modern period. That's a completely um, standard pitch from anyone in power. If you're in power in the early modern period, you want it to be secret. You want uh, people not to be able to question you. And that, so when they they wanted to restrict access to the documents, to their meetings, to the, the letters that they get back from the East Indies, um, when they wanted all of that, uh, that that was really kind of in line with standard practice of the time, um, but the people who were paying in their money, who wanted more access, really it it, it kind of chafed them that they weren't able to get it. So we, what I found is that in 
over the course of those first kind of 40 years of the company's existence, there are these frequent or at least intermittent um, instances of what the leaders of the company called faction, but are, are essentially these disagreements over who got access to what. And those could take place at election time, so in that kind of mid midsummer time, or they could take place not tied to election and were um, kind of posited as procedural changes that people wanted to make to ensure that members could get, the again, non-elected members could get more access to the um, the decision-making and the, the materials that the, the leaders had. Now, the election day meetings, um, when they were contested, and it's not often, it's only a few times, but when they were contested, it could get really heated um, because the what ended up happening is that in those meetings, um, people, the, the challengers were really kind of challenging the, the basis of political representation within the company. So one of the, one of the, um, if I saw this in a, in a, in a, description of an election meeting, I knew it was a, a contentious one, was whether or not someone would say, we need to use the ballot box. So um, today, the the assumption tends to be that a secret ballot is a fairer way to um, to make it, to cast a vote. Uh, that was not at all the case in the early 17th century. Secret ballots were actually seen by many people as kind of destabilizing means of voting, because um, if you could do it in secret, maybe, you know, who knows, like you wouldn't be, you wouldn't, may not be led by, you could be led by your worst instincts because no one would know, um, rather than it would allow the, the freest choice. So in, when, when people would say, we want to use the ballot box for the people in power, that was a sign that they wanted what, what the leader saw as, as kind of to, to increase factional disputation within the company. Um, for the other people, and unfortunately, I only have the records of the people in power. I don't know what the, the way that the challengers would have put it is because the records that have survived have been from people in power. So they tend to be pretty negative about, about the challengers. Um, but the challengers wanted a ballot box, and they use those same arguments of it will allow a freer choice. It will mean that people aren't swayed by what other people want them to do. Um, and, and so there are a lot of contests over, are we going to use a ballot box? Are we not going to use a ballot box? Um, there's a great uh, instance where someone brings a ballot box, and it's an amazing artifact. It still exists. It's really unusual. I mean, we don't have a lot of these at all. Um, it's this kind of fascinating object, this actual ballot box. Um, it's really decorated. It's huge. I've been privileged enough to see it. It's in the Sadler's Company um, collection, and they were very generous and let me let me inspect it. Um, so someone actually brought it. A guy named John Holloway brought it in in 1619, and the the it's kind of it's almost a kind of humorous moment where. He says, I want to use a ballot box. The company said, well, we don't have a ballot box. We don't want one. We don't have, but more importantly, we don't have one. And he kind of like pulls it out like, well, look, I have, I have here a ballot box. <laughs> um, and, and it's a, it's a, I mean, that artifact, it's really elaborate. Like this is not something you put together in a spare time. Like this is something that was commissioned a significant amount of money and time went into the making of it. And, um, and that, that, that election, that particular election of 1619 was the most contentious one um, in the period that I was looking at. And um, ultimately, the king actually, uh, I mean, the, the, the leaders of the company knew it was going to be a, a contentious problem. They'd been hearing about um, about kind of unease and disquiet amongst the generality for some weeks at that point. Uh, they had their own ace up their sleeve, which was um, uh, a message from the king saying, I don't want the leadership to change. Uh, but but that, that kind of contest where you've got the monarch kind of stepping in and saying, 
I want this, I want order. I want, I, I don't want um, things to, to be thrown into, into confusion. And then on the other side, the challenger saying ballot boxes, ballot boxes. We want more access. We want more insight into what's going on. We want to be able to challenge their decisions. That's kind of the big contest. You describe uh, that some of these changes that they're trying to push through in these meetings and how that can be done internally. But a lot of changes that uh, the members of the company sometimes desire require going back and changing the patent. And that involves part of this ongoing interplay between the company on the one hand and the the king and the privy council on the other. I was wondering if you could explain some of the uh, major changes they were trying to push through during this period and and, and why it was that they were pursuing those changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so some of the changes, they, they, there's always reference to the patent. It's not actually always clear. So what's funny about it is that the patent is this written document. Like it, there are, it's multiple written documents, in fact, so that you've got these physical documents. If you, if, if, and that, that the physicality of these documents makes it seem like they're really clear because, you know, you can consult this piece of paper, but it's actually not nearly as clear cut as anyone um, involved would like it to be. So, so from the perspective of, of the monarch, what the patent grants is pretty clear. From the perspective of the company leaders, what the patent grants is pretty clear. But from the perspective, th- those two perspectives are still not the same thing. <laughs> so, so both of them think that they're on pretty strong ground here, but at the same time, and they're both using reference to the same documents, but they've actually got very different understandings of what that means sometimes. So I'll come back to that in a second, but I also want to mention that like the, the, the challengers to to the leadership of the company, they're also referencing the patent. So they, you've got people within the company saying, this is what the patent says. And other people saying, no, that's not what the patent says. So both of them kind of claiming that they've got kind of ultimate, you know, right or authority on their side based on this, this written, these written documents and the written documents are not nearly as, as um, clear cut as they would like them to be. Now, that kind of reference to these physical documents is really, again, is really normal in the early 17th century. Cities keep city archives, um, government archives, like patents, like these, these actual physical documents are, are, are documents of immense um, authority and, and weight in and of themselves. Like they're really elaborate. If you ever see an early modern patent, it'll have, it's very elaborately done. The, the, it's kind of an illuminated, um, usually like the, either it could be black and white, but usually there's color on it. So it's kind of embossed and gilded and the seal that's attached to it can be, um, I mean, they're, they can be enormous. Like if you go to the archives now, when you pull out one of these, they're in special boxes so that they don't get damaged. You, you know, they'll also, you know, they want you to use gloves and like all kinds of, of of specialized equipment to make sure that you don't damage these things. Uh, but they'll be, these are really elaborate documents. Physically, they're imposing, they, they, they look authoritative. And so everyone's kind of referencing these, these same physical documents, but with very, sometimes very different understandings of what's, what's, what they promise and what's involved. Um, if you wanted a patent in, like if they want to change their patent, the way that company leaders can do this is to go to, again, to the Privy Council and the King and ask for a new patent. Um, we say patent and it tends to, it sounds like it's singular. They talk about patents uh, because every every new grant that they get is a new patent that they kind of add to their collection of patents um, to the kind of collection collective pool of what they're authorized to do. Um, so, so they can, they can amend or get new patents. They can also lose their patents. Um, it's, 
this patent, as I said, this is a relationship with the monarch. That means that it can also end. That relationship can end. And so patents can be called in. There's an actual specific legal mechanism for calling in a patent. It's called quo warranto, which means by whose warrant. So if the monarch wants to challenge the company's reading of the patent, and, and this would be like pulling out the big guns, like this is not happening on a, you know, this is when all else has failed, but they can call in the patent for legal examination. And then the company actually, again, has to surrender the physical patents, bring them in. And it has to be the, they have to decide whether or not the, the authorities have to decide whether or not you get them back. And usually if, if it's called in, it's usually to, to not be given back, to be taken away. Um, that's how the Virginia company got dissolved, for example, in 1624, um, which the East India Company was very aware of. So all these kind of contestations in the East India Company, um, corporate bodies are full of, of contests like this, um, other ones as well. And uh, the Virginia Company, for example, uh, was really, really riven by factional discord in the late teens and early 20s. And in the Virginia Company, it led to losing their patent. It became a royal colony. Um, the East India Company, because so many of those uh, merchants were part of the Virginia Company, and so many of the gentry as well, um, who were members of one were members of the other. Um, they, they, they're very aware. They were very aware of what was going on there. And so one of the, one of the, the, the things I saw was that, um, within the East India company, they were, they, they worked really hard to manage discord. Um, and, and they managed to be successful at it in a way that some of those same people weren't in, in other, in, in another corporate setting in the Virginia company. Um, I suspect that because things were so, so tense in the Virginia company, that was kind of an added impetus to keep things, if at all possible, under control in the East India Company. You don't want it falling apart everywhere. One of the things that you described when the approach about these patents is that it gives the crown a degree of leverage. And I was thinking that how, as I was reading the, those sections about it, how there, there, it, the James can come across at times as a bit of a bully. And I was thinking, for example, about how he may or may not have used it to leverage money to go to the Muscovy company so they could give it to the czar. But it also gets to this other dynamic, which is that, that, uh, that, that comes across in your book, which is that this is not just about business, that the East India Company is in, and, and some of these other companies as well are representatives of England internationally, that, that, they're, that they're playing this role that is not just a a private role, but oftentimes they are uh, playing a public role as well, and that the state has a very real interest having delegated this uh, degree of, of sovereignty to ensuring that the company does things the way that the crown wants them to. Yeah, I think that's 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 absolutely right. Like the the East India Company, when it goes abroad, it is the English state abroad. There isn't another. English ambassador. There isn't another English, you know, trading body, anything like that. So for for the for the nations, for the empires that the East India Company interacts with in the East Indies, they are the English state, and and that overlap is um, uh, again by design um, by like that that if the patent represents that kind of wedding of the 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 corporate, the, the, the merchants and, and the regime, um, the consequences of that are that they are absolutely representatives of the regime when they are abroad. And, um, they, they, so when, when it seems like James or the Privy Council is kind of, we're hauling in the, the reins, I suppose, on the company at times, um, that is because, uh, the company is never acting solely as some kind of, of, uh, economic body when it's abroad. It is absolutely acting as a representative of the English state. Uh, the company members 
are completely aware of that. They they see themselves as state actors. They talk about themselves as state actors. The the title of the book, in fact, comes from a a comment by a privy counselor who says that you know that that he said that James was of course very interested in the company and caring of the company because and and couldn't let it fail because it was a business of state. Um, so that 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 overlap between um, what the regime needs and what the company does abroad is is implicit uh, from the patent on. And so when the company acts abroad, uh, it relies on the powers of the crown, it relies on the powers of the regime, and it is in many cases also then creating um, the the the, or rather, it, they're enacting the farthest reach of the English state abroad. Um, they, the East India Company, for example, has an ambassador to the Mughal Empire in, appointed in 1614, an English ambassador. Now, that embassy is incredibly important to the East India Company. Um, and the Mughal Empire at that time is one of the richest empires in the world. Um, and that ambassador is completely royally accredited. It, it's it's a it's a courtier. Um, it's not it's not that that person is not a is not a merchant. Um, but that embassy, so it's paid for by the East India Company, but it's accredited by the monarch, and it kind of shows this weird um, triangulation between who needs what done where, whether this is a private company, a public company. Um, I mean, that there's the, the book really explores at length the way that those, those categories don't, they just don't work for this because there's so many ways in which this is a private or slash public body that is doing private slash public things. And um, so that ambassador kind of really represents this way in which James on his own wouldn't, I don't think have appointed an ambassador to the Mughal court. He had no diplomatic interests in 1614 that required an ambassador at the Mughal court. He had plenty that required Spain, that required France, that required, you know, the Hague. Like there are all kinds of places where he needs an ambassador. The Mughal court, less so. <laughs> if he needs an ambassador at the Mughal court, it's only because the company needs an ambassador at the Mughal court. And so you get this kind of case where the company is funding an ambassador. They don't fund, I mean, most ambassadors are funded by the crown um, really badly, it turns out. Um, if you, uh, the, that, that particular person, Sir Thomas Rowe, actually was paid. Um, many English ambassadors were not, um, or rather, they technically were paid, but they didn't actually get their money for a very long time. Um, so there are distinct differences, um, but it's this, this the, the monarch, like the, the ambassador is fully accredited by the monarch, even as it's paid by a, a, a commercial body. And that kind of sums up in many ways this, this strange overlap between state interests and, and private interests. Um, the other place where you really see that overlap, so it's not just in dip diplomatic provisions, um, but also in military actions, where when the East India Company acts abroad in any kind of military fashion, they're not just acting as a company, they're acting as representatives of the English state. And so this raises all kinds of questions in the period for can the company make military decisions that are going to have consequences for England on their own? Um, and, and that's, and that's also then complicated by the fact that uh, company men and um, who are posted in the East Indies are posted essentially years away. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a voyage that takes at, at minimum six months and you can only make it at certain times of the year. So th those are people who are in many cases acting on their, they have to act on their own initiative on delegated authority, but there's this heightened, heightened concern that if they do something abroad, they could potentially inveigle 
the English state, not just the company, but the English state into, into what they do. Um, and so the, the, one of the cases that I look at in the book is um, that there are a few cases like this where these questions come up. Um, one is what happens when uh, the company acts in a way militarily and what the in a way that is militarily and sorry military and um, and not necessarily at the instigation of of the regime um, in when they for example uh, ally with Persian forces to uh, to expel the Portuguese from Hormuz um, and that that particular case leads to a long drawn out. Uh, conflict between the company and particularly James and Buckingham, the who the Duke of Buckingham, who at the time was Lord Admiral of England and in charge of of any kind of military action abroad, uh, at whether or not they acted in that capacity as representatives of the English state. And if they did, um, then that meant that Buckingham claimed that he should be getting 10% of everything that they took as plunder, which was estimated at some hundred thousand pounds. So it would have been a 10,000 pound kind of bounty for him. Um, James also claimed 10,000 pounds, although his grounds were much sketchier in terms of um, legal justification. Uh, but that, and if they didn't, if they weren't acting on behalf of the English state, then were they just acting piratically? And that's also not okay. So there's this, there is this kind of question in that case. Um, or uh, the other case that I looked at um, really on those lines was about the, um, the, the, the riches, the Earl of Warwick, um, who uh, flying under, under authority of the Duke of Savoy. So he wasn't actually even flying as a, a sailing under, under James's flag, um, but, but sailing under the authority of the, the, Duke of Savoy um, sent up a, a pirate pirate ship um, fleet, I guess, to 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 the East Indies, and took um, ships that belonged to the Mughal uh, the Mughal emperor's mother, uh, the queen mother. And she, she, um, owned a number of ships and, and used them to transport pilgrims to, to and from Mecca or rather to and from the Arabian peninsula. And they, um, that in that case, East India company men and ships stepped in and took back those ships and returned them. And that led to a long conflict, uh, with the, the Earl of Warwick over whether or not they were allowed to do that. And their argument was that, um, we are the only people, English people, who are legitimately active in this area. When you act like this, even though you're not doing East India Company stuff, you are still as 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 the company became the representatives of the English state. Similarly, Warwick's men would be representatives of the English state, and since the English state abroad meant the East India Company, they'd be lumped all together, and they could jeopardize the East India Company's trade. So these these kind of really complex questions turn up over and over again in the early 17th century um, because they they don't really have a they, there's no there's no um, tradition really to to draw on because all of this is happening in in a bigger way and farther away than than most English actions uh, up to that point have been so they, they're really kind of working out all these legal categories and um, relationships of, for themselves at that time one final layer of complexity that you describe is how a lot of those dynamics and relationships change with the monarch himself. You have you spend most of the book talking about the operations of the company during the reign of James I. But after he dies in 1625 and his son takes over, you have a monarch who has very different views, very different priorities, and who uh, you know, in effect changes the relationship between the company and the state uh, as a result. Yeah, 
the the company is um, again, it goes back to the patent, and, and if it seems like I'm kind of harping on the patent, it's because it's just so intrinsic to to understanding the company in this period. Um, because that patent is about a monarch and and a company, a, that, a corporate body, when the monarch changes, what the patent means changes. Because again, a patent is not self-evident. Even though it seems self-evident, it's not self-evident. So it requires interpretation. And the company's interpretation changes over time. The monarch's interpretation changes over time and certainly changes from monarch to monarch. So Elizabeth's understanding, James's understanding, and then Charles's understanding are all very different. Now, Elizabeth was only queen for a few years um, as in she was queen for a very long time, but but in she was only queen for the first few years of the company's existence. And uh, then James, um, James is, uh, in, the way that I, what I was finding, the way that I understood it is that James is, James was very willing to kind of test the company. Um, he was certainly willing to push boundaries and, um, and to really demand quite a lot of the company. Um, you mentioned the, the, the loan to the Muscovy, uh, to, to the czars in, in Muscovy, um, that, that particular loan was, um, given, uh, it was kind of required, uh, front for James's assistance on, on pulling back from a potential Scottish East India company. Um, and that, uh, which, which raises again, all kinds of interesting questions over, over who does the company really represent? Is it just an English East India company or is it a British East India company? In this period, it pretty clearly is an English East India company, uh, but they are able to get the Scottish patent pulled and, and that they are, even though they're really English, they're the only ones. Um, James is really willing to push them, but at the same time, they're able to push back. So there is this this kind of give and take between a monarch um, and company, which is really, you know, ultimately the heart of any negotiation, right? Like neither side wins all the time. Um, where in that case, they 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 give a loan they probably wouldn't have given otherwise, and they underwrite the Muscovy Company in a way they probably wouldn't have by choice, but at the same time, they are given a lot in return and including um, the choice of ambassador, or at least the approval of ambassador who is sent to accompany that money and who's given quite a lot of authority to actually give or actually not give that loan in situ. So it's it, it's a complicated back and forth between them, but it's pretty strained at the time of, of James's death um, because of that Hormuz, um, that account for Hormuz, where, where he essentially coerces 20,000 pounds, 10,000 for him and 10,000 for the, for the Duke of Buckingham out of the company. Um, then, then Charles becomes, becomes the monarch and, um, and then everything's up for grabs again. It's not clear. Uh, once James uh, was dead, it became very easy for company members to kind of talk about what he would have wanted and what he didn't want. You know, it, it's <laughs> very easy to speak for the dead in that way. Um, and, and in many cases, Charles was having none of it. And um, Charles's relationship to the count to the, the company was was very different where um, where you, you saw that sometimes very tense back and forth between between James and the company with Charles um, that back and forth actually didn't work nearly as well I mean one of the things about a back and forth if that's going to work is that both sides actually have to be able to communicate pretty easily with the other and so while under James's reign, what I saw was that company and privy counselors met a lot. Um, company members, uh, those, those again, the, that court of committees, the governor, the deputy, they met pretty frequently with the privy council. They were called before the privy council. They came to the privy council um, on a, on a, 
not a regular basis in the sense that every Monday or anything like that, but, but they, they were there a lot. They mentioned it, they talk about it. Um, there was this kind of easy recourse, um, that changed under Charles and, uh, by, by, and that changed pretty quickly under Charles by the late 1620s. So just a few years into Charles's reign, um, that, that sense of that easy recourse was gone from the minutes. And there, there's this one great, um, not great for the company, but great for me as a historian, um, account where, uh, the company company merchants, uh, the leaders, they go to the they go to meet with Charles, and they've got this petition that they want to hand him, and they just they're just they just wait, they just wait outside of the Privy Council doors. They talk about waiting and watching people go back and forth, and then finally, kind of buttonholing um, the the uh, William Laud um, uh, uh, Bishop, and and kind of. It may have been Archbishop at that point, but um, uh, buttonholing him and kind of compelling him to say, like, okay, when w- when can we actually meet with Charles? And him kind of like, well, try again tomorrow morning. We'll see if that if that'll work out. And and so that that sense of that easy, you know, again, they didn't always get their way, but but that sense of communication, that open communication, was was there, and that really changes under Charles. And and indeed, Charles actually um, took a lot of of made a lot of decisions and took a lot of actions that kind of showed that he didn't um, value the company in quite the same way. He, um, and in fact, uh, was not very pleased always with, with the, what they did and how they were constituted. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, well, I'm working on a, so this book, uh, you know, as with any book, right, it takes up a lot of your time for a very long time. And uh, and then then you have to transition into a new project. Um, this book really explored the East India Company in the up to from 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 its formation to the the late 1630s. Uh, but it was really focused very much on on what was happening in England. Uh, there are lots of ways in which what was happening in the East Indies kind of really impacted that. But what I was really trying to tease out is that relationship between the company and the state. Um, I think for my next project, I'm I'm going to move move to the East Indies a little bit and look a little bit more at the company, um, the men, the men who are posted abroad, um, in, in the, the, what are called factories of the East Indies. So factories doesn't mean someplace where stuff got made, but someplace where factors or employees lived. So, um, so looking at these factories, which are these kind of small communities, um, in, in major trading outposts, or rather they're, they're trading outposts in major trading, um, cities across the East Indies. And, and what, how do they, they, how do they learn to live abroad? How do they learn to deal with, um, regimes and political systems that are very different from what they were used to? Um, and, and in many cases where they had to live for, if they don't die, that was always a, 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 always a risk. Um, but if they, if they survived that they places where they would be for a number of years, usually three or four, sometimes longer, um, but where they were sent alone, they were not supposed to be married, or if they were, they were not supposed to bring their wives. So something about about these factors. I'm still in the very early stages, but I've been collecting materials and I'm kind of looking forward to to digging in. Well, it sounds like an amazing project. I look forward to reading it when it's done. I, I hope it'll be. I hope it'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> Rupali Mishra, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. <laughs>